0: The yeshiva.net. So today's class is dedicated in the loving memory of Mrs. Shirley Levy, Allah Ashalem, by her daughter, Liz, and Dr. Michael Michelle, in loving memory of Liz's mother, Shirley Levy, Allah Ashalem, Sarah Pessel, Bas Reb Arye Leib, in tribute to her yard site on the 22nd. Day of Other. Thank you very much. And and may she continue to serve as an eternal source of blessing and inspiration and light for you and your entire family, the children, grandchildren, the entire community, and all of Klal Yisrael. So everybody knows that Friday, around an hour or two before Shabbos, HaGon HaAdi, Reb Chaim passed away suddenly a massive heart attack in his home on Rehov Rajbam 23 in Bnei Brak, at the age of 94. And his funeral was on Sunday. It's probably the largest funeral in the history of Israel. Between 750,000 or 1 million Jews came to Bnei Brak to bid farewell to Reb Chaim Kanaevsky's Eche Tzadik Levracha. At the funeral, he was eulogized among others, by his brother in law. His brother in law is so a Jew named Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein, Shlita. Both of them are sons in law of Rav Eliyoshev, who was one of the greatest halachic authorities. Rabbi Yosef Shalom Eliyoshev, Zatzala, was one of the greatest halachic authorities in Israel and passed away a number of years ago. Both of them married um, his daughters, two of his daughters. So Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein shared a story at the funeral. And the story was as follows, that his brother-in-law, Reb Chaim Kanievsky, was writing a sefer. He was writing a book called Karnei Chagovim. Chagovim are grasshoppers. And it was a book, it was part of a larger book called Sia Hasada, which means the vegetation of the field. But this is part of that book, called Karni Chagavim, that was dedicated to analyze grasshoppers and various species of locusts and grasshoppers from a halachic perspective. And what's there to analyze? Why is he writing a book on grasshoppers? He wasn't just a naturalist (laughs) whose interest was grasshoppers, but it was for a particular reason. The reason is, and I just want to give you the context, it has actually to do with this week's Parsha, which is Parsha Shmini. And the funeral was Sunday of Parsha Shemini. You see on top of this first source sheet, you see on top of the source sheet, there are, there are images of of grass of a grasshopper. If you look at the first source, Shmini Perik, Yod, Aleph, Posik, that's Leviticus chapter 11, verse 21. The Pasik says, and I read, and you have it also in English translation, Achazet, Haichlu, Mikol, Sheretz, HaOif, HaHolech, these you may eat among all the winged, swarming things that walk on force. All that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground. These are the types you can eat. One of the species called arba, which we translate locust. And within that species, the entire min, which means every variety within that species. Next, as HaSalam Lemineu. This is called the bold, bold locust. And all of its varieties in the species. And then Es Lemineu, called a certain form, a certain type of cricket. And finally as HaChagav Lemineu, the grasshopper. And again, all the varieties within this species of Chagav. Now, The Torah gives here the signs how to identify, and it continues. All other insects and all other uh, winged swarming things that that swarm the earth, um, that crawl on the earth, that fly, are forbidden to eat. So Reb Chaim in his book was analyzing exactly to figure out what are the signs, how to identify the signs, which which, uh, forms of grasshoppers are kosher, not kosher, what are the minimum identified by the Torah, and all of the details. Now it happens to be that in all of these cases, because there's so many different types of species, and the Torah gives specific names, and the names have been forgotten over the ages, so you need a Masaira, which means you need a tradition from parents to children, grandparents, that this was eaten. So for example, Yemenite Jews eat these, this, this picture that I put in here, is eaten by Yemeni Jews, today they're mostly in communities, so they don't need it anymore. But uh, when they were in Yemen, I heard from Jews, and they were in Yemen in the 1950s, 1960s, Yemeni Jews are mostly gone, they left. But they ate a certain form that they called Chagav, I think in Arabic it's called Gerad. It had these identifying features that the Torah gives, and Chazal are specific about all the features. Including a very interesting feature, if you look on the top one, on its breast there's a ches, it looks like a ches, you see, put a red arrow there, there's a red arrow there, so that is, if you look at it, it literally looks like a ches in real life, and of course it's called Chagav, and Hashem also in Tanakh says that he's going to send his chel, his army of locusts, which he sent in Egypt and then other times, so, and it has actually under it is another ches, because ches could be written in two ways, with a roof, the, the top line of the ches is straight, or it's pointed on top. It's Rashid, I've been a rash, two ways of writing a ches, and it actually has both, both cheses. So this is, a, this is, this is the Chagov that they actually eat, ate in Yemen until our times. It was even an older Yemenite Jew, and they asked him, what did it taste like? He said, tayim ma'od, very delicious. It doesn't seem to me that way. But I'm an American boy, and uh, you know our feelings about uh, grasshoppers and locusts. But, uh, <laughs> he said, <laughs> delicious. <laughs> I'm not telling you to try this at home. So, uh, <laughs> but this was a tradition. Yemeni Jews are there for literally thousands of years. And it was an uninterrupted history. Other communities, unfortunately, constantly... You know, expulsions and massacres and pogroms everywhere in the world, but a few communities that more or less were consistent. And 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 Yahadus Teman, Yemeni Jewry has that until today. If you see their traditions, it's like a it's a certain element of of ancientness that you see in their traditions, and even the way they daven, the way they sing, it's very interesting uh, Yemenite uh, Yemenite Jewish customs. So they literally had this tradition to eat this. This was common by them. It was part of their Shabbos table, part of their part of their yom table, part of their week, weeknight dinners or whenever they ate it. So Reb Chaim wrote a sefer about this whole sugya of Chagavim, Karne Chagavim. But sitting in a little house, little tiny house, uh, two and a half bedrooms in Bnei Brak, he really didn't have access to a Chagav to be able to identify and see because you can talk about all of these things, but without actually seeing it, you know you don't really understand it. And it was hard for him to, uh, to complete it. So his brother-in-law says at the funeral one day as he's busy writing, suddenly a little creature <laughs> shows up in the room where he's sitting and learning, comes through the window, and he takes a look, and it is a Chagov. It's this grasshopper that he was writing about that showed up for him to look at it, examine, walking around so he should be able to see all of the features, he saw everything he needed for his halachic lab experiment and the grasshopper flew away. Now, you know, sometimes people tell stories and, you know, we live in a world where sometimes stories are exaggerated or dramatized and not always accurate. His brother-in-law said it at the funeral. So I already assumed it's very authentic. But then somebody sent me yesterday a video that actually a Yemeni Jew who uh, deals a lot with, uh, he's, I don't know, he's a scientist or a naturalist. Went in and somebody took a video and he asked him, Chaim Kenevsky if it's a true story. And uh, he smiled a little sheepishly and said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't make a big issue of it. Yeah, he says, I was writing. And he pointed exactly where the grasshopper landed and it walked around. And I looked at it and I saw my grasshopper and it went away. And he didn't even make a big, a big tumult of it, a big sturm of it. This is the story. Now, I want to try to explain this story, at least a certain element of uh, of this story, the, the way I understand it, because it's not just uh, an interesting and beautiful story, but if we go a little deeper into the story, it has a very profound message for each of our lives. And to do this, we're going to change the subject for a moment. If I were to ask anybody sitting in this room or anybody listening or watching, or any Jew, you read Chumash many times, or at least one time, two times, Parsha, the rest of the Tanakh. If you would ask somebody, can you tell me what is the greatest miracle that happened throughout Chumash, recorded in the Chumash, or in the Tanakh, throughout Jewish history? So most people probably... We'll talk about the ten plagues that befell Egypt. They'll talk about Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, no small miracle. They'll talk about the manna, the mon coming down every morning to feed a nation of millions of people. They'll talk about the rolling stone that accompanied the Jews 40 years and was a source of water for, again, not just hundreds of thousands of people, but millions of people known as Be'er Shalmiriah. The wellspring of Miriam, which was really in Iraq that accompanied the Jewish people, and other stories that the Torah records throughout <speaking in Hebrew> during the Jewish people's, especially during the Jewish people's sojourn in, each, in in the desert. And then, of course, in Tanakh, you have plenty of miracles from Yahishua stopping the sun, Shemesh <speaking> Begivo in <Hebrew> To the miracles of many a prophet, many a judge, many a leader, especially the stories of Eliyahu Hanavi, and the stories of his student and disciple Elisha, throughout the Tanakh, many many different stories. Whether it's telling the Naaman to go into the Jordan River and it heals him from his leprosy, or the story with the oil, all the stories in Tanakh, or the story of Eliyahu Hanavi going up in the flame, or the story of Eliyahu Hanavi having the fire come down on Hakam. I'm just mentioning a few of many many stories. And all of these, each one on its own, is grand. And what we mention every day in Jewish history is, of course, Yitzhius Mitzrayim and Kriyas Yamsov. The exodus of Egypt and the splitting of the sea, which is the genesis of Jewish history, it didn't only affect an individual, it affected all the Jewish people, followed, of course, by the ten plagues, which were all supernatural. Ultimately, Paroi was brought to his knees and he let the Jewish people go and they split the sea. And then, of course, Harsini, they come to Harsini where they have the revelation of Matan Torah, and they're given the Torah and mitzvahs that guided and guides the Jewish people to this very day and for eternity. This is what most anybody would like to add, any other mess of Chumash that comes to your mind? Avram uh, Avinu, okay, that's not in Chumash, that's in Madrash, but yeah, certainly Avram was saved from the fire. Matan Torah, you're saying the creation of the world. Very good. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> That's even before there were Jewish people. Yeah, very good. I'm talking about the miracles later that happen actually to the Jewish people or to people in general. So obviously the creation of the world precedes everything and everybody and it's the foundation of everything. But it's interesting, in the beginning of the Aserah Sadib was, The Eben the asks the question, why doesn't it say that I created heaven and earth? It's a much bigger miracle. It's a question of Rabbi Yehuda Alevi. And when brings it, why doesn't say I created heaven and earth? So there's many answers given. One of them is that this represents the Hashgacha, the divine providence, not just the creation of the world, but that I have taken you out of Egypt. But in any case, these are all the fantastic miracles. And of course, the, the highlight at Maimed Har Sinai. There's an interesting thing that beyond all these miracles, there's one more miracle. And I think in many ways, it's greater than all of the others. It certainly ranks right on top of them. Maybe top five, maybe top. And yet, it's almost not mentioned. It's almost unknown. Certainly, even if it's known to somebody who learned it, it's not commemorated in any way. It's not remembered. There's no tribute to it. There's no memory of it. For example, Yitzhi Yitzhi we mention every single day. Twice. <laughs> In the morning and in the evening, and then we have a whole Pesach Seder and a whole Pesach experience to relive it—no eating chametz and eating matz and the mortar and the cheroses and the questions and the cups and hesayb and everything. Pesach is, of course, coming in a few weeks. I don't think I have to mention that in this room. Okay, he'll tell it uh, to those that have to, have to have to remember. And of course, Shlouis remembers and tells us about Matan Torah and Sukkot reminds us of the of the journey in the midrash, and then then you have Chanukah and you have Purim, these were miracles that were manifested in nature, but also great moments, and we celebrate them, and we commemorate them, etc. But this one, which may trump them all, is almost unknown, and certainly not commemorated in any form or fashion. What is it? It's recorded in some isolated space, what you may call in Yiddish, they would call it uh, a farvarfen which is not really the right word because uh, there was a Jew whose name was Abchas Abramsky. <laughs> he wrote a book on Tisafta on Brysis. so somebody once told him, it's a farvarfin a Tisafta which means it's like a lost Tosefta. he says no 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 this Tisafta isn't forforfen du bist verworfen Tisafta is not lost you're lost it's 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 not farvarfen. but my point is that it's isolated it's hidden somewhere <laughs> and uh, unless you read it and you learn it and you remember it it's really not unknown and i want to go there and you have it in your source sheets, Shmini Perikir Aleph, the next sources. This is Leviticus, Vayikra chapter 11, this week's parsha, parsha Shmini. At the end of the first side you have the Hebrew, on the other side you have the English translations, but I'll read the Hebrew and translate. Vayidabra Hashem al-Mosheh v'Al leimer alayim, Yisrael leimer. Shem speaks to Moshe and Aaron and he tells them, Speak to the Bnei Yisrael, to the children of Yisrael, to the Israelite people, and this is what you should tell them. Which means, these are the mammals, these are the creatures, the animals, that you may eat from among all of the land animals. And he gives the famous two signs, And that is, any animal that has real hooves with clefts through the hooves, and an animal that also, in addition to the hooves, the split hooves, it also chews its cud, which means kosher mammals have four stomachs and after they swallow and digest, they regurgitate the food and they bring it back up and they chew it again and again and then they swallow it again. And this happens numerous times, four stomachs. These are the animals that you should eat. Stum just parenthetically, it's an interesting thing. I once saw the Mepharshim say, there's a Pasik, there's a mitzvah, in say, case, it says, b'sheru you're not allowed to plow with an ox and a donkey together. It's part of the halachas of kalayim, of hybrid, just like we don't crossbreed animals of different species. So even just plowing shor and chamayr, an ox and a donkey, or any two types of species of the animals, we don't plow them together. So the mafarshim say, why not? So uh, one of the commentators says, I think it's the chizkuni, says a fascinating thing. He says an ox is a kosher animal, a bull, a cow. A donkey is an unkosher animal. An ox chews its cud. If you ever see kosher animals, if you watch sheep or goats or oxen, you'll see it looks like they're always eating. They're not always eating. Lunch can be 12 o'clock, but 1.30 they're still eating, not because they're eating, but because they're chewing their cud. So like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? You'll see it in sheep, you'll see it in goats, you'll see it in oxen, you won't see it in donkeys, you won't see it in horses. When they eat, they eat. When they don't eat, they don't eat, they digest it. So this is what they write. When the ox and the donkey are plowing together, the donkey is looking at the ox, and the ox is still busy eating dessert, right? And the donkey gets terribly irritated and aggravated and envious and jealous. Why does the boss, (laughs) why does the boss show favoritism to the ox over the donkey? So the Torah says, do not do that. Do not take a kosher and non-kosher animal and have them plow together. Because you're simply causing him aggravation. He thinks the ox got more food. He didn't get more food. So this is one of the semonim of kashrus. In addition to split hooves, it has to chew its cud. So Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, speak to the Jews and say, Zoy this is; these are the land creatures that you should eat. Great, wonderful. The posse continues later, possek tes. Pasach tes. Meaning, these are what you may eat of that which lives in the water. Anything in the water, in the seas, in the rivers, in the oceans, in the seas or the streams, anything that has fins and scales, that's what you may eat. That's pasaktas. Yud Gimel, he goes off to, to a new species, a new, a new a new living, a new type of living organism, he goes over to birds. That what? That these, you should not eat among the birds, they are, they should be rejected from the Jewish diet, the eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, and he goes and enumerates 24 types of species of birds that are not kosher. And then Pasuk Haftes. He goes over to deal with what we call reptiles and insects. The following shall be impure for you from among the things that swarm on the earth. They are the insects that walk on the earth the mole, the mouse, the great liz- lizards of all varieties. And he goes through another few Shmainah Shrozim, the eight famous reptiles, insects that. The Jew does not eat whether it's the the, the the lizard, the weasel, the mouse, etc. Turtle. He goes through eight of eight eight of them. The chameleon. The Chazal were disturbed by something. What were they disturbed by? They were disturbed by one word. Apparently, Moshe Rabenu is giving these lectures to the Jewish people, teaching them the basics of Hilchas Kashrus. These are the basics. These are the foundations of what Jews eat and what Jews don't eat, and how do you identify that which may eat and which may not be eaten. But if you realize in all of the cases, he speaks about mammals, those are land animals, he speaks about fish, everything in the water, all of water creatures, he speaks about birds, and he speaks about insects and reptiles. These are the four. In each one, there is a unique way in which Hashem communicates the message from Moshe to communicate to the Jewish people. And that is, it begins with the word zeus, or a zeh. These are the animals you should eat. These are the fish you should eat. These are the birds you should eat. These are the insects you shouldn't eat. What do you mean these? When you say, he doesn't just give a lecture about insects or birds or fish. ze means this. We have a klal. When you say zeh, it's maribet zboi zeh. Whenever in Tanakh it says that means you point to it. That means this. If it's not in front of me, I can't say zeh. I could speak about the person. I could speak about the concept. I could speak about the animal. I can't say zeh. What does this then mean? Zoi this is the animal? No, he could say, there are animals you may eat, and I'll tell you which types. There are animals you may not eat. I'll tell you which types. But that's not what he says. He says, zeh, sachaya and I'll also tell you what you don't eat. And it's all zeh. Our sages give a fascinating interpretation here. And it's your next source. 42a. We learned in the yeshiva of Rabbi Shmo. Hashem fetched, Hashem grabbed every species. And he showed Moshe and he said, this eat, this don't eat. And Toys fasads there Laharis li Yisrael Ezi Yasur ve He wanted he should show to the Jewish people what is forbidden, what is permitted. Okay? So this is what God did. Now let's take a look in Rashi. Rashi, Zoy Sachaya says Rashi, Malamit Shoya Moshe Oichez Moshe held on to um, the mammal, umara HaOysel Yisrael, and he showed the animal to the Jew, and he said, Every animal, both that which are forbidden to eat, and that are permitted, Moshe held on, Toifes, and he showed it to them visually. Here, this you eat, this you don't eat. You would think, okay, mammals. How many mammals are there on the planet? Anybody knows? Huh? <laughs> 5,500, around 5,500. I don't know how many most people could name. <laughs> uh, I don't know how most, most people could name, but there are approximately between 5,500 and 6,000 mammals, I believe. So he says, Tafas Moshe and he shows, this yes, this not, this yes, this not. Fine. But what about everything in the oceans? So Rashi continues. Av Bishir say also, when it comes to all of the creatures in the water, he says it twice. He took every species in the water, and he showed it. That's why it says, This you should eat with the water if it has fins and scales. If it doesn't have fins and scales, don't eat it. So Rashi says, It wasn't a lecture, it was a visual, vivid, physical representation. Here, you see this fish? This is the carp. Kosher, the hecht, good, the tuna, good herring, chili and sea bass, tilapia, there goes my education, gefilter fish, <laughs> I don't think he showed that, <laughs> but in any for obvious reasons, huh, what did he show the eggs, the carrots, which part of the gefilter fish, the carrots <laughs> so. Rashi says, that's what the Torah is referring to, all the creatures in the waters. So you would think, okay, anybody knows how many species of fish there are in the waters? (laughs) How many creatures live in the water? Not how many fish there are, how many species. There are not 6,000 mammals in the world. There are millions. I'm talking about species. You understand what I'm saying? Categories. A horse is one category, right? A a hippo is one category. A chimp is one category, a gorilla is one, one category, a lion, an elephant, it's a hyena, it's one category. So there are 50, at least minimum 5,400 categories. But how many categories, how many species of fish there are? So there are? So they assume what we know is close to one million species. I don't know how many species of fish most people could count, very few. We know gold, and we know cat, and we know cloud, we know a few. But there's close to one million, and some assume that there may be another million that they still have not identified but it's minimum close to one million. There are arguments because it's so unclear. I mean, today we know obviously much, much more with incredible technology and research. But you're talking about one million, not fish, species, types. As Rashi says, you would think, okay, we got it. Now we go to the birds. So Rashi continues. These you can't eat from the birds. So Rashi says he held every bird. How many species of birds are there? Ten thousand species of birds, not ten thousand birds. Species categories. You would think, okay, we're done now. Also with insects and reptiles. This, let me show you the insects that are tame. Let me show you also those few that are kosher, like we spoke about the grasshopper. So Rashi says he showed every species. Now, how many species of insects are there in the world? you know 33 million 33 million approximately not insects insects there are billions and billions and schmillions not schmillions but billions many billions or more maybe trillions but species you're talking about millions and millions of species types do you see what I'm saying about the b- biggest miracle in all of Chumash? You think splitting a sea is a big deal? So just imagine the scene. And Rashi says it almost in Hebrew. The word adishut, echam madishut banglit. the from In Yiddish, you say kaldblutikahet, but it, it's, of fact. it's almost like matter of fact, yeah. Kaldblutikahet in English would mean cold blooded, but that's not the right translation. Just like matter of fact, yeah, sure. It says zois. <laughs> Yitzias Mitzrayim doesn't seem to come close to this. <laughs> Not to take away chalila of any Givaldic event. but Huh? It doesn't say how long. But it seems like whenever he taught it, whenever he taught it, this was a lot to teach because he would teach all the details, all the protim. So Rambam says, nitna. He taught it with all the commentary. Because the Torah itself, the text is very cryptic. It's very general. There's so many details and nuances that Moshe had taught and that became part of the oral tradition that was recorded in in Teres Kayenim and Mishnah and Gemara throughout the generations. It was transmitted orally and then it was transcribed in later generations because Rabbi Yudanasi saw it all be lost. But that's much later in history. And Moshe also taught it. The Gemara says in Erevin Nundal that Moshe used to teach first to his brother and then he would teach it to Aaron's sons and then he would teach to the Skenim, and then he would teach it to all the Jewish people. So Aaron heard every Sheer four times, and his sons heard every Sheer three times, and the Skenim heard it twice, and the Klal Yisrael heard it all for Moshe, and then they would repeat it. And Hashem says, when you speak to the Jews during all of these shiurim, as long as it takes, this is how you do it. So we're talking here about an, uh, 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 I don't even know how to say it, a mind-staggering phenomenon that is completely out of this world to the point that it almost boggles the imagination to think about what happened here. Now, you might ask a question why did, why did we need this for? <laughs> What's the point? Just give us the lecture about it. But actually, from here, we learn how you have to teach. <laughs> you have to teach in a way of Zeus Hachaya. Words can't be abstract. Words can't be nebulous. Words can't be transcendent. They have to be visual, vivid, concrete, so that people can experience the information viscerally, what we call today teaching in a very visual fashion, because when you teach concepts in an abstract way, first of all, very often it's unclear. And even if the comprehension is clear, it just doesn't have the same level of internalization and impact like when a person really can, can show, and it's true about all types of teaching, all information, you know, Every, any concept you teach, if it's not really brought down in a way that a person can, can feel it in their gut and see it with their eyes, physically or at least intellectually and emotionally, it's not really that effective. So that's what we see from it. Hashem said, "Zoy Sachai, like says, in Chulin, that he wants, a Jew should really be able to see what is forbidden and what is, what is permissible. But the question is, Think about what happened here. You have close to 6,000 mammals that walked into the desert and said, hey, Moshe, here, I'm the hippopotamus. I'm the rhinoceros. Here, pick me up. <laughs> and then you have the elephant. Domesticated animals and mostly undomesticated animals. Mammals, Mela. Fish? We fish in Midbar. How are you getting fish in a desert? I thought fish have to live in water. So they hung out in the desert for Moshe to give a lecture. They died, they went back to the water. Rashi, if you're not analyzing the miracle, it doesn't even tell us how it happened, what happened to them afterwards. Why were the Jews complaining they don't have food? They remember the fish in Egypt. When they had endless fish, obviously the fish didn't die. They went back to the oceans. So who, fish walk? It's it's beyond. And then you have insects? 33 million species of insects, and even if other species develop, whatever it is, we don't know exactly the numbers. But, and they all came, everyone came. And all the birds, <laughs> and all the birds came, to t- 10,000 species of birds. Birds don't let you capture them easily. And where did they come to? They came to this wilderness, to this midbar, which naturally was an infertile place. There's not a place that was a habitat for animals, a rainforest, and you have there a concentration of all the types of species, every type of butterfly, every type of crocodile, every type of alligator in the swamps. No! But the alligators are here, the crocodiles are. Here, they're part of the shrotzim. They're the big mama rept. They're the big uh, reptiles. They're part of the shmeiner shrotzim. Certain crocodiles, and they're all here. And, and and Rashi says that Moshe showed all of them. Mikol min So what about those from Australia? We discovered in recent generations new species in Australia, in New Zealand, in other forests in Africa in Asia, South America. So everybody made this beautiful talucha, this beautiful prate, and they came to the Midbar, Moshe Rabbeinu, Mikol You have, in Parshish Noyach, the Torah says, that when Noyach built the Teva, so two of each species, the non-kosher ones, the kosher ones were seven, but two of each species, male and female, made its way to the Teva. The taka the Torah dedicates a whole section of Noach to tell you the story. It's a big story. And you know what? No fish came. <laughs> no fish came to the Teva. They couldn't come to the Teva. In addition, the opinions in Zvachim, Kofyut Gimel, the Mabel was everywhere in the world, or not everywhere in the world. So the Mabel was in Eretz Yisrael, the Mabel was not in Eretz Yisrael, because the Mabel only affected part, was the Mabel in places that people were not living, they weren't corrupt. The Mabel was also not in a desert, Noach wasn't in a desert, he was in a habitat. He built a teva over a long time, and there was time. And the Torah specifies it. Here, even fish came. The Torah doesn't even make mention of it. Rashi makes mention of it as a matter of fact. And it's during the whole time that Moshe taught, which could have extended itself for a very long time, Moshe teaching all of these halachas. Some might argue that Moshe only showed the kosher ones. Even the kosher ones. It's hard to understand how it happened. But clearly, Rashi shows us, the Pasik says, Moshe says, Rashi says, Mara Zois loy The zois was on both. The source of Rashi, if you look in the source sheets, the next source is Tyrus Kayanim, Shmini The source of Rashi is Tyrus Kayanim, which was authored already by the time of the Tanayim. And that's where Rashi got this from. Of course, Rashi didn't invent such a story. This is part of the tradition of our sages, and it's recorded in Tyrus Kayanim. So, if you see the the, the 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 it says as follows: Even with the water creatures, he showed them everything that you don't eat. When it comes to the birds, he also showed what you could eat, what you can't eat. When it comes to the insects, so the to make sure in each one of the four mammals and fish and birds and insects to specify that Moshe showed every species, both the kosher ones and the non-kosher ones. Shabbos Parsha Shmini Tovshin Lamed Aleph. April 1971, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York held a fabrengen on Shabbos. And he raised this question that I'm sharing with you today. And he said, over the years, I would scrutinize how melamdim, how teachers teach this Rashi to their children. He said, and I remember when I was a child, how I was taught this Rashi by my malam, my teacher. And nobody makes a fuss. Nobody throws a party. Nobody throws a feast. It's almost like Next, let's get to discuss what are hooves, what are... And I, I, I not understand it. It's, it's, an, it's a neis goddel, gadl. Maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe presented the following explanation. It was a deep and very profound explanation. I'm going to bring out one point of it, Ba'ezar Hashem. All the miracles that are recorded in Chumash, all the miracles that are recorded in Tanakh, astounding, incredible, are miracles that are self-contained. The water turned into blood. Frogs came and saturated and filled all of Egypt. There were lice on all of the Egyptians. The other plagues, splitting of a sea. Of course, the water in the well of Miriam, the man, self-containedness that were there to save the Jewish people, to feed the Jewish people, to sustain the Jewish people, to penalize the oppressors, etc., etc., this miracle was of a different nature. What was it? It was part of limud Hatira. It was part of learning. Moshe Rabbeinu was giving a shir. Moshe is teaching Torah. And how do you teach? You teach in a visual way. So in order to teach, he needed to be able to show the Jewish people what they're learning in the most concrete and visceral way. If this is the case... It's not a pella. It's not considered a miracle that all of this happened. Why? Because Torah is higher, transcends the universe. Torah is the purpose of creation. The pasuk opens up the Torah. Bereishis bar elakim. So Rashi says, "What's Bereishis? Should have said Berishina. Bereishis Beis Rashis. There are two Rashishes, Bereishis for Beis Rashis, bar and that's called Torah and Yisrael." Torah is called Reishas, and Yisroelah called Reishas. So the whole world is subservient to Torah. The whole world is dependent on Torah. The whole world is bottled to Torah. So when Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching Torah, and the world needs to respond, it's obvious that the universe responds, the cosmos responds, and the planet assists and does whatever it has to do in order to be able to help Moshe Rabbeinu facilitate and bring his sheer to the Jewish people. So of course, when we look at it, we're like, wow. But from the Torah perspective, when it comes to learning Torah, to teaching Torah, it's not a Pella. Chazal didn't consider it astounding and astonishing and incredible, and would get startled and overwhelmed from the fact that a miracle happens. If Moshe Rabbeinu needs to give a she'er and teach Torah, so they all come, if they have to come for the shir, they all come, the birds come, and even the fish come, and the mammals come, and everything. And legabe legabe, so you'll say, okay, fine, but mention it. <laughs> At least, okay, we mention it, but talk about it, dramatize it. So he said, but there's one more step. Lagabe the greatness of Torah, legabe, the value of Torah, legabe, the infinite awesomeness of Torah. it doesn't even occupy a prominent space. It doesn't have a tfis asmokam. It doesn't occupy mental prominent space. So when you're learning it, what's the kach? What's the involvement? The psukim themselves. What Moshe Rabbeinu was teaching. Not the fact that so much of the planet was affected by it. So the fact that when you're learning Torah and teaching Torah, miracles happen. Chazal didn't see it as astounding. Michael Marshmallow, of course. The whole world is, is created for Torah. The world is subservient to Torah. You need to learn Torah. You need to teach Torah, and it has to happen. It happens. <laughs> and if it's a great miracle, it's a great miracle. But you don't even make a shturim of it. Shturim means you don't make a, a, a ruckus. Why not? It's a big fuss. And the answer is, because the main kach, the main focus in learning Torah is Asher, we say in the blessing every morning, Asher bacharbonu es He chose us from all of the nations, and he gave us the Torah. And even the greatest miracles in the world, whether it's reptiles or fish or insects or birds or mammals, even though from another earthly dimension, it's like wow, 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 unprecedented and not to be repeated again, perhaps. But Lagabi the Torah, Lagabi the Maila, Lagabi the value of Torah. What's happening? Moshe is teaching Torah. It it uh, forfeits. It forfeits, it loses its, its grandeur, its drama relative to the power of Torah itself. What does this mean? Let's explain what this means. What does this really mean? So there's a story in Tanakh. It's a very famous story that David HaMelech was bringing the Aaron. The Aaron was emancipated from the Philistines. And David brought the Aaron, he put it, the Aaron on a wagon. <laughs> The Pesach says, Because if ye sow, the Oren had to be carried. When the Jews traveled through the desert, and later when they brought the Oren to Israel, they were never allowed to put the aron on a wagon. Other parts of the Mishkan, you had heavy parts, you had beams and bars, etc., veils, curtains, they put on a the wagon. They had wagons. But the aron had to be carried on the shoulders of those who were in charge, the family of the Levium in charge, the family of Aaron and Levim in charge of Carrying the RN, it had to be done on the shoulders. Not only that, you couldn't face your back to the aron. So the, the aron had poles. So two people in front, two people in the back. But they had to face each other. So two of them were walking backwards because they had to look at each other face to face, not to put the back to the aron. David HaMelech, by mistake he forgot, and he had the aron on the wagon. And then Uzzah came and touched the Oren. It was a tragedy there. So Chazal say, what happened? How did this happen to David HaMelech? So the Gemara says in Saitalamad Lamid the next source, Darash Raver. said, David, why did David have this consequence?" David called the Teira songs, melodies. Shenemar. It says in Tehillim Kufiyat Hayali David, a in capital Kufiyat which is the chapter in Tehillim one nineteen, the longest chapter in Tehillim, one hundred and seventy six Psukim, where he waxes eloquently and with full passion about the Teira. He says. Your statues, your title, were songs to me. Zmiras, they were ballads, they were melodies. Whenever I was a foreigner, I was a gayer, I was an alien. David HaMelech was always on the run. He was always escaping the wrath of his father-in-law, of other people. He had so many enemies, so he said, I needed songs. So what were the songs? This is difficult to understand. The words of Torah on which the Pesach says in Mishle, in Proverbs chapter 23, If you move your eyes away from it, it disappears. The Malbim says, is from the word Oif like a bird right if you don't hold it every moment what's going to happen to the bird it's not going to stay it's going to fly away a living bird (laughs) it's like a bird you move your eyes away and it disappears in other words your diligence has to be constant you move your eyes away a moment and it's gone and you're calling it mirrors. you're calling it songs as a result you're going to forget things that every child knows every child knows the iron has to be carried and you might forget that also what does this what does this mean What's the problem of calling Torah Zmiros, songs, a beautiful thing? What was Hashem upset about? Why did David call it Zmiros? What's the idea of this? So there's an incredible mimer of the Balatanya, and look at the Torah parshas Bamidbar, and from the Tzemach Tzedek, Derech Mitzvah, Mitzvah of carrying the Uren on your shoulders, and he says as follows. How did the Torah serve as a song for David HaMelech? What's the concept of Zmiros? Those of you who appreciate music, and I think most people appreciate music, know that there's a certain pleasure and delight a person experiences from playing music, from listening to music, from singing or listening to somebody sing. And it's so pleasurable that you could sometimes listen to the same song. If you love the song, how many times can you listen to it? You can listen to it like endlessly, right? It doesn't work that way with words. Yeah, I remember I was once at a program in a hotel and Mardifab and David was there. So, I was speaking during the Yom Tif and he was singing. So, Chalamayad, so I was speaking during Yom Tif and Chalomayud, there was a concert. So, uh, he gets up by the concert and he does all these new songs. After an hour, the crowd says, The oldies, we want the oldies. We don't want the Naya Mishagasin. Give us the old songs, you know. Give us the oldies, the oldies, right? We don't want the new stuff he says, no, we just want the old song. So he takes the mic, he says, I was sitting, I think, in the second row, and he says, something unjust is happening here. Rabbi Waiwai, during Pesach, during the first days, was talking, and if Chas V'shalim, he repeated a joke that he said three years ago, somebody came you said it already. (laughs) If he repeated a story, you said it already. If he repeated a vart, you said it already. I heard it four and a half years ago. Chutzpah to repeat it. He says, I am trying to sing something new. And all you're telling me is the oldies. We don't want anything new. We want only old stuff. What's the reason? That was his comment. And he went to sing on the oldies. <laughs> What's Taka Pshat? The Pshat is words. How many times can you hear the same, uh, the same speech? Even if the presenter is great, how many times can you hear the same joke? Once, twice, okay. Maybe after three times you laugh. The fourth time you're just going to laugh to... You know, to make the person feel good. But at some point, I got it. I got it. I got it. But a song doesn't work that way. Why? If you love the song, we kind of zing in and zing in and zing in. People could listen to a song a thousand times. I'm talking if you like this song. If you don't like this song, even once it's not a, it's a, it could create a migraine. We don't know if you love it. The answer is because words represent, uh, Balatanya said that words are the pen of the mind. And a song is the pen of the soul. Words are kulmus ha A Anigin is kulmus ha the soul comes from a place of infinity. A soul taps in to the chords of infinity. And it's inexhaustible because infinity, you know, you're not getting closer to it. Words take infinity and they conceptualize it. They print it into finite terminology. David Amalek says, He was running away. He had no he had no foundation in life. He had no home. He had no dwelling place. He had no place, you know, you, you, you read about the stories of the refugees of Ukraine, right? Think about people who built lives there. It's, it's rabbis and uh, rebbitsons and Jewish people and families, institutions and schools and just their own home. And within 30 minutes, you realize everything is being bombed. What do you take? What do you take? What, you, what are you supposed to take? I have a friend, his name is Rabbi Yaakov uh, Levitansky. He was the Chabad I should say is, Chabad in Sumi, Sumi, Ukraine. Sumi was bombed very heavily. But in the beginning, they all decided to stay. After a few days, he realized he and his wife and his children are pushed in danger. So he left. So somebody tells me a few days ago that he called them and he said, you know, people are giving money for the refugees, but I want to give money just for you, for you and your wife and your kids. So instinctively, he says, no, 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 I don't need anything. I'm fine. He says, Really? He says, you don't know, we left before Shabbos. My kids have even Shabbos clothes. We're fine. We have everything we need. They even have Shabbos clothes. He says, my friends don't have Shabbos clothes. They barely have clothes. So in his mind, he and his kids went out before Shabbos. They had Shabbos clothes, so he has everything. But a person who's completely uprooted, you lack that stability, that security that we all take for granted, that safety. David HaMelech experienced this. So he said he needed a song. And what was the song? The Torah became for him this connection with something transcendent that gave him an anchor in a very turbulent world. In a world that's filled with so many vicissitudes and fluctuations and extremes. And a person can be schlepped from here and there, especially when you're running for your life, and you're a fugitive, and you're a refugee, and you could never sleep in one place for more than one night. I and mean, if, you, if your identity is going to be revealed, your life is in danger. As this kept happening to David again and again, if you read through the Tanakh, if you read through the Sepharim of Shmuel, David Amalek is hiding in deserts and in caves, and he runs to the Philistines. At some point he has to feign insanity for Achish, you know this story, right? He feigns insanity because Goliath's brothers, Goliath's brothers, identify him and they want to murder him. And he, he, he makes himself passionate like an insane, insane person. And Achish says, He had a wife who was, uh, was mentally very, very unstable and challenged. and, his, and So he said, I need, I need another one. I need another one in the palace. Get the, get him out of here. this Achose this, Meshagai uh, and David HaMelech wrote a Kapitel in Tehillim, some say it on Shabbos morning, David feigned insanity, means he changed his flavor, he made believe that he's abnormal, he's an imbecile. In front of Avi Melech, this was the generic name for the Philistine kings, like Yad, Farah, Yad, Avi Melech, Achashverish, and Persia, he said, leave. What was David's rock? What was David's foundation? How did the Torah do it for him? So the answer to the Balatanya says, because David HaMelech understood something. It says in Medrash that when Hashem had to create the world, he needed blueprints. Or he wanted blueprints, I should say. A contract that doesn't build a home, doesn't build a mansion, doesn't build a shul, doesn't build a school, or any, any architectural piece, without any architectural edifice, without a blueprint. I know maybe some contractors are different. They don't follow the blueprint. But a good contractor follows the blueprint. You don't just build. There's a blueprint. There's a plan. It's Oizgi Cheshben. Right? Where's the bathroom going to be? Where's the sink? And you all know the tzaddas that happens when either the architect didn't draw a good blueprint or the contractor decided he's an Ibachachachim, right? And he decided the air conditioner should be here, but of course there's no place for the wire. And eight years later, you're still trying to move out of the basement or of the shrigger and move into your new house. This is a well known phenomenon dealing with contractors. You have to follow a blueprint, the blueprint has to be Oizichesh comes the Medrash and says, when the Reboi Shalalam created the world, he also had a blueprint. It was called the as the Pesach says, in Mishleva Eya Etzloi Omoin, the Torah was the clay Umnos, it was the blueprint. Hashem, it says in Zoya, reise, He looked into Torah, and based on that, he created the world. This means two things. This means there's no phenomenon in the world that doesn't originate in Torah. Like in a house, there's nothing in the house that's not there in the blueprint. You have to know how to read a blueprint. Not everybody knows how to read a blueprint. But there's nothing in the house that's not in the blueprint. Because if it wouldn't have been in the blueprint, the contractor wouldn't have put it in the house. It also means something else. It means that if you want to understand the the house, you go back to the blueprint, you're going to get the origin of it. The essence of it. So it's really an expression of the first point. There's nothing in the house that's not in the blueprint, and therefore, if you want to appreciate what's in the house, you trace it back to the blueprint. It also means the blueprint is expressed in the house, and there's no contradiction between the two. It's not like there's a world of Torah, and there's a world of science. There's a world of Torah, and there's a world of psychology. There's a world of Torah, and there's a world of cosmology. There's religion, and there's geology. There is heaven, and there's earth. It's one, Enoid Mulvada. Because the world is an expression of Torah. It's a manifestation of Torah. Again, you have to know how to read the blueprint. You also have to understand the relationship between the two. But the relationship is one of the deepest relationships because it was based on that. Because of this, this gave David HaMelech tremendous comfort because he realized that his relationship to Torah gives him a stability that transcends physical serenity by having one secure location. David HaMelech realized in the words of the Balatanya, how diktuk echot How one nuance, one diktuk, one detail of Torah is actually essential to the vitality of the world because the vivifying animation the electricity of the world flows through Torah. So to give to give uh, to give an example, I uh, I once uh, asked my programmer who programmed the yeshiva.net to show me what the back end looks like. So he took me into his office. I don't know if you ever saw, maybe there's some programmer say, you ever saw the back end of a program? Pure gibberish. Just pages and pages and pages of digits, of syllables, of letters. It made absolutely no sense. So I took the mouse and I said, well, what are you doing? I said, what happens if I erase this ridiculous symbol? He said, if you erase this, your website <laughs> is going to be down. <laughs> I said, what does that do with the website? He said, back-end doesn't work the way you see it. In back-end program, one letter you erase or you change the sequence and the whole outer display is completely transformed. I said, I'm not becoming a programmer. This is beyond me. We know this today in the 1950s, they discovered the DNA. It's incredible. We share 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees. So what's the difference? The difference is 1%. If you change one tiny little sequence, yeah? Suddenly I'm a chimpanzee. 50% of DNA we share with a banana. You just change 50% of it and I turn into a banana. <laughs> and what about two people? Right, What makes you different from another person? And it's a tiny, tiny fraction of a fraction of a sequence in DNA. And Halila, something is a little off and it can create absolute catastrophe in terms of biology, in terms of the human organism. So you say, come on, such a little thing, when you're dealing, not really dealing with DNA, you're dealing with etzem, you're dealing with the chios, you're dealing with the blueprint of the body. DNA is the blueprint of the body. In every cell you have a double copy of the genome, which is really a program, it's a program. And they call it letters. These are the letters that comprise basically each organism and they make up the structure of it. One detail changes everything. Why? Well, it's not just an isolated detail. It's the back-end program. It's responsible for the entire entire structure. David HaMelech was saying this about Torah. A Jew sometimes thinks to himself or herself, you know, I get this question very often, and that is, Halacha is so detailed and so nuanced. It's Shabbos, and there's a salad, and the salad has lettuce, and onions and tomato. And somebody doesn't like onions. So if I take the onions out of my plate of salad, what happens? I transgress the prohibition of bayr And if the times of the Beis HaMikdash, if I did it by mistake, I would have to bring a carbon chatos. But if I took the tomato out of the plate, because I want the tomato, so I took the good, the oichel from salad, uh, Perfect. So now I ask you a question, really? (laughs) I took out a piece of onion from the salad and I put it aside, it was mixed there. That really changes so much to the effect that there's an entire halacha. A coin is in the base of Mikdash and he has to receive the blood from the animal to sprinkle on the mezbech and he receives it with his left hand instead of the right hand. It's possible. The carbon is possible. He sprinkles the blood. Some come said to sprinkle the blood on the half part of them is half the upper half, the lower half. You make a change. It seems so strange. It seems strange only if you don't know the back-end program. As somebody once said, I sent you an email. Why didn't you get it? I said, Tell me the email that you sent it to. He sent it, tells me the email. You know what he missed out? Dot. Rabbi YY at the yeshiva.net. I didn't get the email. That's ridiculous. Just because I didn't write a dot, you don't get the email? Yeah, I didn't get the email. How can a dot have such an impact? The answer is you call it a dot. But the one who designed it, the back end, for us dummies who don't know back ends, it's a dot. Not a dot at all. DNA is smaller than a dot. One little variant there that's missing. The person could Khalila lose so much. The Gemara says in Sukkah, but Rabbi Yechenem and that he did not. When he learned, he didn't let go of something big and something small. He says, What's big? Meissimir merkava. Meissimir Kavah is the understanding of Hashem and the world. What's a Dover katan? He says, All the Talmudic discussions of Abaya and rava. So the Mefarshim say, That's called small. That's what Jews have been learning for thousands of years. So the Shalos says something amazing. It's the same thing. He says when you look at a star, the stars that look tiny, right? They look like a they look like a pea. They look like a cholin bean. The problem is they're three bil- not the problem they're three or four billion light years away, and some of them are bigger than the sun. <laughs> they're larger than the sun, but from my perspective, they're tiny. If you get a little closer, it's hard to get close. But if you get a little closer, you'll see the largeness. You saw a picture of the black hole, they got a picture of the black hole. You're talking about 25 billion miles in diameter. It looks like a bagel. 25 billion miles in diameter. 25 billion miles. But from my perspective, it's tiny. I don't see it. So he says, Dover Gadl, dover, katan" means what on one level looks like Havey is on another level is my kava. It's divine. It's like that dot in the email, that sequence in DNA, that one letter. It has absolute transformative powers because Torah is the back end of all of existence. It's the back end of the entire cosmos. So if I don't know the DNA, the details look insignificant. Who cares if it's this or it's that? Now here I always have to make a disclaimer. And that is, if somebody is triggered by something because of trauma or OCD and therefore, then it's very hard to relate to all of this. And then the details can indeed become toxic because sometimes I, have, I know people, you know people, that the obsession in details really traumatizes them profoundly because the presentation was done in a very abusive way or they may push and have something they're struggling with internally. And then you have to be very, very sensitive and patient and not confuse the big picture and, 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 and obsess on a detail which can destroy somebody's mind. So you have to, I'm just saying this sensitively. But I'm talking now from a very holistic point of view Right? There's an expression which I don't like to say. The devil is in the details. But here we're not talking about the devil is in the details. We're talking about that the truth of everything is in the smallest, tiniest speck of ex- the, 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 a person's saliva, a person's strand of hair, one cell of 70 trillion cells has the whole blueprint. You have to be able to appreciate what a, a small diktuk is when you see the big picture. If you don't see the big picture, then it's, it's, it's meaningless. But when you do understand it, and you understand it from a place of joy and serenity and tranquility, then it's something, it's something to, to celebrate. It's something to appreciate. The value of a prat, the value of a word, the value of a gesture. The value indeed of even one of the jinn's and one detail of one of the jinns. So David HaMelech, when he was in such a state of distress, a whole world is against him. He says, I have a song. And what's the song? The song is of Torah. That one little diktuk of Torah is responsible for the entire flow of divine energy in the world. It's like changing that one little digit changes the whole back-end program, which changes the whole planet, which changes the whole cosmos, the whole universe, even the spiritual universes, and it's all that one prat of Torah. Because that comes from the divine inner wisdom, which is the back-end of the universe. Rabbeinu Vallashina once said that it's not that because murder is repulsive, therefore the Torah says don't murder. It's not because theft is horrible, therefore the Torah says don't steal. It's not because lying is disgusting, therefore the Torah says stay away from lies. It's the other way around. Because the Torah says loy sertzach, therefore murder becomes unconscionable. Murder becomes unfathomable to a civil person. Because Torah says don't steal, don't lie don't engage in incest, etc., bestiality, whatever it may be, because of that, these behaviors become repulsive. Because Torah is the blueprint of the world. The world responds to Torah because the Torah says, therefore, Ritzicha becomes a negative thing. If this is the case, this was so comforting for David HaMelech that even when he was in such difficult situations, he had the DNA of the universe, so to speak. He had access to the back end. He had access to the, to the mind of God. To the mind of God. The programmer, not just the program. The programmer responsible for the program, and that became a tremendous source of ecstasy and delight. And yet, the Rebbeinu Shaloylam says, Zmiris karis You're calling Taira a song? You're going to forget what children forget. L'chaideh, what's greater than this? David HaMelech calls and still, there's something deeper about Torah. There's something about Torah that's even deeper than the fact that it's the back-end program of the entire universe. The fact that it's the DNA of the world. The fact that it's the blueprint that the Rebbeinah Shalala made for the world. Even deeper than that, that the vitality, the chiyos, the flow of the universe, comes from Torah, and from the halachas of Torah, there's something even deeper than that. What is that? So if you look, I think it's the last source. A second to the last source. Mishle Ches Proverbs chapter 8. The Torah is speaking. Mishle is a book where the Torah speaks about itself. The Torah says, I have become God's blueprint. Umnos. V'eya sha'ashuyim yoim yoim misachekes lefon of there's something even deeper than amen. Something even deeper, amen. From the word "obnus," like a uh, craft, uh, a blueprint is the instruments that a builder uses. The blueprint, like the papers, the the the, the sketches, the drawings. The what shashuim." means? "shashuim" in Yiddish is "spiltsayg," toys. But in this case, it means I have become his his delight daily that creates a quelling at every single moment. David as great as his words are, incredibly great, and true, there's something yet even deeper about Torah. And Hashem said, why didn't you tap in to that? Because the true value of Torah is, as it says in Zoyer, that it's completely one with Hashem. It's the inner will, the inner soul, so to speak, the inner essence of Hashem's mind, of Hashem's will. As the Rambam says, He's one with His will, He's one with His wisdom, it's Hashem Himself. Now, nah, just like Hashem, somebody will say, you know what makes Hashem great? I'll tell you what. He created all the trees. It's true. He created all the trees. But that does not define Hashem's essence. Famous expression, of the Balatanya, The primary essence of Hashem is not the fact that creation came from Him. It's a Gaval de kazakh. And we talk about it in B'suket de Zimra. And we marvel. Look at the world. It's amazing. I can't create a world. But to reduce Hashem to the fact, what's His greatness? He created a world. It's actually... Somewhat den- it's actually somewhat embarrassing and denigrating. To give an example, Havdil, if somebody, for example, would write on the tombstone of Professor Albert Einstein, he was a brilliant man, he knew how to tie shoelaces. First of all, I don't know that he did. But let's say, or he knew how to change a light bulb, again, I'm not sure he did, or fix a doorknob. That's what you're writing on the tombstones? Yeah. In fact, monkeys can't do it. Horses can do it. Even lions can do it. They're very powerful. Elephants can do it. They're very emotional and smart. They have good memories, but they can't change a doorknob. You're right. Lagabi the elephant, it's a Gvaldica thing that you can change a doorknob. And Lagabi a monkey, it's a Gavaldica thing that I can change a light bulb and I can tie a shoelace. But to say that that brings out the wisdom of a person who was considered one of the great men of the century and changed their understanding of science and physics, it's an insult. I'm just trying to give a metaphor. The fact that Hashem created the world for us, that's pure infinity. And it is. But Legabe Hashem himself, that's actually required a tzimtzum. It's a contraction of energy. It's humbling of himself to compress himself to become the DNA of the universe. DNA is incredible. Incredible. But to capture with this the true greatness, the true value of Hashem, It's not. Because who he is we say ain't i can 't even i can 't even define it. The same is true with Torah. The fact that the Torah is responsible for the life of the world that 's amazing, incredible but that doesn 't define the ultimate essence and value of Torah. the ultimate essence and value of Torah is that it 's Hashem himself, and hashem himself transcends infinitely. Even the fact that he transcends the universe and he creates the world and, and is responsible for the world. Because that itself is already the way he compressed and limited and filtered and condensed and was mitzamtzim and defined his energy in a way that it can become the battery of the universe. No question to be the battery and engine of the universe is incredibly powerful but ultimately it's a finite, relatively finite expression of of something that has no definition, no description, and is beyond any description whatsoever. So therefore, when you're talking about Torah, beyond the Amayin, it's V'Eyesha Ashuyim, that this is the essential connection with Hashem Himself. And Hashem Himself is far beyond any universe and far beyond any creation. You know, sometimes, (coughs) you have this Marshall (coughs) that I once heard from the Rebbe, he said as follows. He said, Why does a Jew learn Torah? Sometimes a Jew learns Torah because he enjoys it intellectually, or she enjoys it. Sometimes he enjoys it emotionally. Sometimes a person needs to know what to do. Sometimes a person wants schar, they want ilam haba. Sometimes it's entertaining. All these things, beautiful reasons. But he says, What's the ultimate truth? The ultimate truth is sometimes, you know, you, you have been away maybe on a trip, and you come home, and you're two year old sees mommy or sees Tati, and what do they do? They run over, they run over, and they run into your hands, and you pick them up, and you hug them. And if you ask the child, what are you gaining out of this? You're going to get cotton candy? No. And the answer is, I'm not gaining anything. It's an organic, natural response. I just want to be one with my mommy and Tati. When they get older, it gets sometimes a little more complicated. When they're two years old and three years old, and Tati comes home from work, and it's like that feeling where it's just a feeling of dvekus of ecstasy, of oneness. Not because of some practical benefit that's going to come from it. I hurt myself and I need you to hug me and put a band-aid. That's also true. <laughs> mommy, mommy needs to cook and mommy needs to do your laundry. And mommy is responsible for the house and Tati does his jobs and everybody has their duties. It's all true. We need our mommies and Tati's growing up and even later. But here... It's not because of a utilitarian practical reason. I'm hugging you so that you're going to like me, so tomorrow I'm going to get a lollipop, so you'll take me for ice cream and pizza Mitzvah Shabbos. The vert is, the two-year-old, three-year-old, I just want to be one with you, because we're one. You weren't home the whole time. You weren't home the whole day. You were gone for a few days. Tati came home, mommy came home. They run in, they run into your bosom, they run into your lap, they run into your arms. You lift them up and it's just a moment of pure, unadulterated connection and love. So the Rebbe said, a Jew comes home from work. It's been a long, stressful day. A little child, what's the natural thing to do? The thing is, you run into the arms of the Rebbeinah Shalolim. You just want to be hugged. How are you hugged by Hashem? That's Torah. Torah is His intimate wisdom. It's His intimate love. It's His intimate essence. And it transcends the fact that it's the blueprint of creation. Because this is Vekas with Hashem's essence. And Hashem's essence can't and should not be reduced to the fact that creation comes from him. Because the fact that creation comes from him is just one expression, albeit a fantastic one, and one that we're very grateful for, of Hashem. But it's one form of expression. And therefore, when a person is focusing on the truth of Torah, the focus is what is its true value, what is its true essence. So now imagine... If you uh, you win a lottery, you buy a lottery ticket, a lottery is going for $360 million. And you buy a lottery ticket for $360 million, and you win it. Okay? On the way home, somebody comes over to you and says, Oh, I owe you. I owe you $20. I took $20 the other day from you. You, 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 you ordered an Uber for me. So here's the $20. <laughs> when you come home to your wife, what are you going to say? To your husband, what are you going to say? You're going to say, what's new? New is, oh, somebody paid me back $20. I wasn't expecting that he would pay me back the $20. It's true, he paid you back $20. It's very nice. He paid for the Uber. You bought him an Uber. That's not the news. What do they say? The news that's fit to print. The news is you came home with $360 million. Hopefully you don't have to give most of it for taxes. It's not that it didn't happen. It's just it doesn't occupy space relative to what's happening here. You ever watch pictures of the planet Earth from outer space? A spaceship goes. Yeah, you ever saw pictures that they take from planet Earth? I once saw a picture somebody sent. It was from 4 million miles. And planet Earth looks like a speck of dust. And then you go further, you don't even see it. It's not that the planet doesn't exist. It exists. And it's important. And we all appreciate our planet and hope for peace on our planet. But when the person is in the spaceship, they have to actually work hard to notice it. Not because it doesn't exist. And not because it's not important, but because they're in a universe that is so beyond, it is so infinite. We know about 28 billion light years, I think, that we could see. 28 billion light years. Remember what a light year is. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. So understand, a light year is not a year of 365 days. It's 186,000 miles per second. Now 28 billion light years. So the planet, the planet is a great Sezach, but you don't notice it. If this is the case, we could now understand what's happening here in this story. The fish came, and the birds came, and the reptiles came, and the mammals came, and the insects came, and it's gewaldic, no question. But Rashi just says it matter of fact. Gamora says it matter of fact. Raskaitim says it matter of fact. The Torah just says, Zeus, next. Why? Because here is where you see what Torah is. What's the gift of Torah? The Vakus with Hashem's essence. Hashem's essence. So you're learning Torah. What's the teacher telling the child? Hashem spoke to Moish and said, teach this to the Jewish people. The Koch, the Sturim, the Rukas, is on the Torah itself learning it. Hashem chose us and gave us this gift, this Torah himself. Miracles have to happen, they'll happen. Why shouldn't the world, why shouldn't the birds come? Their, their, their DNA is tighter. <laughs> if tighter, Moshe is giving a shea, he needs the birds, they're here. 10,000 species, those aren't 10,000 species. You need the reptiles, they're here. You need 33 million species of insects, they're all come. One of each specimen. Didn't need more than one, just need one of each specimen. He didn't, couldn't show everyone. <laughs> I don't think he did that. Then we would still, he would still be giving the Shia today. He showed one specimen of each species. The fish have to come. One million pieces of fish, they came. Michael Marshmallow, Toyota want? they came. It's not just that. There's no commemoration of it. It's not like part of the story. Why is it not part of the story? Imagine somebody's looking at the sun. In the sun, in the solar core, you have light. The rays of light extend from the sun, but they're also inside the sun. But nobody's going to say, oh, I see the sun. And then somebody will say, do you see the light in the sun? It's not that the light doesn't exist in the sun. Over here, we're very appreciative of the rays of light because the sun, thank God, is not in the tent because if it would be, we would be toast. The sun is where it is and the rays extend into our planet and give us heat and give us light and give us warmth and our responsible for vegetation and photosynthesis and produce. In the sol- sun itself, in the solar core, the rays of light are subsumed. It's called bottle. Not that they're not there. Of course they're there. If the the sun itself is also light but you don't notice it. Not noticing doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means it has no tfisas makam. It doesn't occupy space because it's subsumed in the sun, in the sun itself. The Gemara says in Baba Metziah, Dun Test 59, there was a debate between Rabbi Eliezer and the sages about an oven. He said it's pure. They said it's impure. It's called Tanar Noi. And miracles started to happen <laughs> to prove Rabbi Eliezer had miracles happen. The wall of the base Medrash bent in. The, the, the stream of water went backwards. Other things. And he said, You see, this is because I'm right. And then a baskel, a voice of heaven, came out and said, Halach is the Yeshua said, So Yeshua said, Torah is not in heaven. Hashem gave Torah to the Jewish people. And he wrote in Torah, you follow the majority of the Sanhedrin, the majority Paskin its tummy, not the so one of the Tanoi met Eliyahu Anavi, And he said, what did Hashem do when Rabbi Yeshua rejected the baska? And he said, sorry, you can't tell us how to baska it in So he said, nitzchuni nitzchuni. Hashem was quelling, he was laughing, and he said, my children were victorious over me. They were victorious. They won me, they defeated me. What does this mean, they defeated them? So the Maritz Hius, the famous Tzvi from Galicia, he says... That the word nitzchuni comes from the word netzach. Eternity. Nitzchius, like la'ad, or the netzach netzachen. He says miracles happen in the world. But the foundation of Matan Torah was that every Jew was at Har Sinai and Moshe Rabbeinu gave them the Torah, and the Jews saw it. Every Jew was there by Har Sinai, the only religion that you had millions of people observing Moshe being chosen as a prophet. And one of the things it says in the Torah is that Torah will not be changed. Mitzvahs will not be changed. And no prophet and no baskel can change the halacha. So now miracles can happen. Walls can come and go, and water streams can go different ways, and plants can be uprooted, and there could be baskels. But Nitzchuni, Bonai Nitzchuni, the Rebbeinu Shaloylam said, my children made me eternal. What does it mean they made me eternal? That you have a Jew. And every world, the world is filled with so many different things. A Jew opens up a Sefer and goes into Torah. The Jew goes into the world of Netzach this is a world of absolute timeless eternity that's not just greater than the world it's from a place where the entire world subs- becomes subsumed like the ray of the sun in the, in, the, in the solar core there was a Jew, his name was Reb Herschel Ziger he was a bab of a he owned a grocery store on Empire Boulevard, for many years, Empire Boulevard in Heights is a shul, the Empire Stiebel, Empire in Brooklyn, if you know the geography of Brooklyn. The Baba Verebbe Rebbe lived there, I think, till 66 or 67. And he owned a grocery store there. Today it's owned by, uh, by somebody else, I think a Hispanic fellow, but he stood there, at Herschel Ziger, and he was a grocery man who would sit with the, a hand on the counter of Gemara. He did not like when customers came into the store because he wanted to continue learning, but somebody has to pay the bills. So begrudgingly, a customer came in. What do you want? Okay, potato chips, ice cream, Coca-Cola, milk, and he would serve the customer. The moment he was done, he went back to his learning. He was a very interesting man. So anyway, there was a story about him. He was in the death camps. And uh, after the liberation... I heard this from his son. He lives in Borough Park. After the liberation, there was a chaplain that came with the the, the American troops, the Soviet troops. They liberated Auschwitz and the other camps beginning in January. Auschwitz was liberated January 1945, and then the other ones in the next few months. And there were all these Jews who had nothing. So this chaplain, his name was Reb Aaron Paperman. He would ask the, the prisoners, the inmates, in Yiddish, what can I get you? And he would try to get things for them. You know, usually, You know, get me some shoes. Find me if there's a relative. I, I need pants, I need a shirt, I need more food, I'm starving. Whatever it is. He met Rabbi Herschel Ziger and he said, what do you need? So he says to Rabbi Paperman, he says, I need a Maseches Baba Kama, I need a Gemara, the tractate of Baba Kama. So he said, Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll see about it. What do you need? He says, It's been years that I didn't hold a safer in my hand. I need a Kama. And when he kept on insisting and pleading with him, he realized that he means it. And he went and he arranged it. To his credit, he arranged it with the American troops. I think it had to go all the way to Eisenhower I forgot the name it went, all, went very far to the top to bring in here into one of the, the, the camps that they were the displaced persons camps he got his Gemara Baba Kama he was re- res- resurrected what is that about? that's Pshat Nitzchuni here is a man, he's a lonely man he had very little in the world and yet he saw his babakama and he felt that he, his wife, his children, his family are all eternal. He felt that he's connecting to eternity. That he's connecting to something that nobody can destroy, that's indestructible. It's like the Rambam says when you go to the mikveh and you put yourself completely in the mikvah, the Rambam says it's a remez for mehadas. Submerging yourself in the water of in the water of wisdom, in which the person is completely submerged, there's nothing else. We say about Hashem Moshiach, The earth will be filled with Hashem's knowledge like water covers the sea. It's completely submerged. And then there's nothing outside of that hug with Hashem, outside of that vacus, outside of that intimacy, outside of that oneness. So it's not just that Torah is the back end of the universe. That's true. But there's something much more powerful than that. And not just much more powerful, something that is so deep that everything else... Just not that it's not significant; it's very significant. It's amazing, but from that space, when you're in the solar core, the ray of the light is just not noticed outside of the solar core. Ooh, Gavaldik, Moshe, you, you, you have all the animals coming to you. How do you do that? It would be the dream of every scientist from Moshe Rabbeinu's day t- till this day. But Lagabi, the Chiddush of Torah, the Dvekus of Torah, all these Nisim that happen in the world, Sahat came batrefnished. So Rashi almost says it, like, nonchalantly. <laughs> Matter of fact, if Titan needs it, it happens, the world responds. If you'll take a look in the last source, Beis Yosef, Yehredeah, Pei Beis. Beis Yosef was written by Rabbi Yosef Karo, 1500s. He authored the Shulchan Aruch, but he wrote a commentary on the tour. Yehredeah in 82 deals with Kosher animals, the sign of kosher animals, Parcher Shemini. Says Rebbe Yosef, The Re, one of the Baalei Atosvis, was learning about birds. And one of them is called Koran. And one of them came to the yeshiva. (laughs) One of them came to his yeshiva, His Korkovan, the pupuk, was peeled and he had an extra finger and he did all these Simonim suddenly he saw and then the Beis Yosef argues imagine he had a bird he examined the bird he said it's kosher and the Beis Yosef says it's hard to say this not that the bird didn't come it's hard to say that his conclusion was right even the miracle doesn't impress the Beis Yosef. Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein at the funeral quoted this Beis Yosef. At the funeral he quoted this Beis Yosef of Simon Pei Beis. And I come back to the story I began with. What the power of Torah is. Rabbi Chaim Kanevsky had something unique about him. And that is that for approximately... I think it's not an exaggeration, but it's 86 years. He learned Toyota for around 18 hours a day. There was nothing else in his world. Nothing else. He sat in a little home in Bnei Brak. He wasn't even a teacher. He wasn't a Rav of a shul. He didn't have an institution. But he learned, he, he was born in 1928 in Pinsk. Pinsk. Pinsk is Belarus, Lithuania. His father, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael, is kind of, known as the Stipler going because he came from a city. His mother moved to a city called, his parents moved to a city called Horin Stiple in Ukraine. He was named after Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael as an interesting name. It's a very Hasidic, Hasidic name. It was the Chernobyl Maggid Magid. If you know Hasidic history, Rabbi Matla Chernobyl had, his third son was Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael. Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael. He's known as Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael of Cherkos, which is also Ukraine. He was a Tversky, one of the third child of the sons of the Chernobyl Amagad, Reb Matala, Reb Mardachai of Chernobyl, which is also in Ukraine. Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael married a woman named Rebetzin Dvarileya, who was a daughter of the Mittler Rebbe, the son of the Balatanya. Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, had a son, Reb Doiv Ber, the Mittler Rebbe. He had a daughter, Dvarileya. She married Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael of Cherkas from Chernobyl. And he lived with the Balatanya in Liadi. While Tanya passed away. He moved to Lubavitch. He was there for 20 years with his shver, the Mittler Rebbe, and his brother in law, the Tzamach Tzedek, Rabbanach of Lubavitch, who was a son in law of the Mittler Rebbe. They used to learn Bechavrusi, Rebbekavisol of Cherkos, and him. Rebbekavisol later moved. He became a Rebbe in Cherkos in Ukraine, other cities, but then Cherkos. He passed away in, I think, 1876 or so. And he raised his grandson, Reb Marduch of Haran because he became an orphan at a very young age. So he raised his grandson, and he became a Rebbe in Haren Stiple in Ukraine. The stipler's father, who Reb Chaim Kanevsky was named after, his father's name was Chaim, Chaim Peretz, was a chassid of Reb Marduch Haidov of Haran One of the grandkids told me once that the stiplers, the stiplers' parents, their children were not surviving. You know, then there was a tremendous mortality rate of children, especially during pregnancy and after birth. And his cho- children were not surviving. And the story goes, I have to authenticate it, but uh, so one of the grandkids told me years ago that Reb Mordechai, he went to his Rebbe, Reb Mordechai, who was a, a grandson of the Mittler Rebbe, of the Balatanya, of, of, of the Chernobyl of Reb Chernobyl. And uh, he was a son-in-law by the Tzanza, the Divri Chaim. He married his daughter. And he said that he should give a name, the next boy should give a name after Rebbe Yaakov Yisrael of Cherkas who was the Chernobyl Amagat son and the, grandson, the the son-in-law of the Mitla Rebbe. And he did it. This is his name. Everybody knows he's named after him. Rebbe Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky. He was born in uh, in Rishmem Test. That's 1899. So he, his name is Yaakov Yisrael. He, his father died very young. His mother sent him to Navardic. So he learned to Navardic and he became a Rosh Navardik. Navardic. Ultimately, Rebbe Chaim was born in 28 in Pinsk. Named after his father, who was a chassid of the harn stipler. And in 1934, they moved to Eretz Yisrael. The stipler married the sister of the Chazaynish, Rabbein Avram Yishayi Karelitz, Miriam. This was Rab Chaim's uh, <coughs> mother. So he was a brother-in-law, a nephew of the Chazaynish. In 1934, they moved to Eretz Yisrael, to Bnei Brak, And Rab Chaim sat and learnt. So for close to 90 years, he was 94 when he passed away, so close to 90 years or 86 years, 85 years, a Jew learned 17 hours a day, 18 hours a day, I heard from one of his grandchildren, he said a few years ago, he complained that his mouth is bitter, the bitterness in his mouth. So one of the grandkids said, you know what, let me bring him some chocolates. So he, he brings him a piece of chocolate. So he says his grandfather is 80 years old, he looks at it, he says, Simimza." he thought it was a pill. So he, wanted, he said, is it a kadur? A kadur is a, a tablet. You swallow it. He wanted to know, what do you do with it? Do you swallow it? Do you put it on a certain part of your body? Do you chew it? So he said, the 80-year-old man, he didn't know what you do with a piece of chocolate. So a Jew learns Torah for 18 hours a day, literally. And every Erev Pesach, he would make a siyum on Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi. He would make a siyum on the whole Rambam, Mishnah Torah, on the whole Shulchan Aruch. He would make a see him on the whole Zohar. He would make a see him on the Tanakh. And he would make a see him on the Medrashim that he would learn. When there was a leap year, he had an extra month. So he would author a book. <laughs> because he had an extra month, he would author a Sefer. The Kayacha Taira is something that it's not just Torah is the DNA of the world. That's also true. It's not just Torah is a song. It's not just Torah is pleasurable. Taira is something that is so incredibly deep that it reflects Hashem himself. And therefore, the fact that with Torah, nature responds to Torah, that's part of Torah. And as we see here in Parsha Shemini, it's not even considered an astounding phenomenon because it's a reflection of Torah. To the point that it's not, they don't even make a shtudom about it. So the Beis Yosef says that he was sitting and a bird flew over, he checked the re. This is the power of Torah, that a Jew who learned Torah his whole life, you see the schus HaTorah. He was learning about grasshoppers and he needed to see a grasshopper and sure enough, a grasshopper came in. He looked at it and when he said over the story, I saw in the video, it wasn't like, yeah, okay, you know, a grasshopper came in. It was great. Now, of course, you know, a skeptic could say coincidence, but I think we understand, you know, the chances you're sitting in B'nai But yeah. <laughs> Somebody wrote to me that somebody said the story can't be true because grasshoppers always travel in groups. Then the person regretted it because he saw a grasshopper in isolation. A person could say, but ultimately, here we see, here we see at least one perspective, one dimension of how to understand this story. <laughs> now the truth is that even though every person has, you know, the way they, every person has the shlichas that Hashem gave them in the world, every person based on their own circumstances and their personality and their family situation and what they're needed for, and what their talents are and resources are. But the truth is that this, as you can see, is essentially a lesson for every person. And it's a lesson for men, it's a lesson for women, it's a lesson for children, because the mitzvah of Torah applies to every Jew, as it says in Halacha, men and women, all their mitzvahs, and generally all elements of Ashkafah and Amunah, the six constant mitzvahs of the Sefer HaChinuch, apply to men and women equally. And not only that, the Gemara says, the one who's responsible for the kashrus in the house, and the one who's responsible for the food in the house, <coughs> Hopefully, men help. But usually, the women, the woman is responsible for the food. And this was Moshe's shear about kashras, about food. So he was talking. I don't know if the men were listening, but certainly the women were listening. He was talking about the Jewish kitchen. What birds, what fish, <laughs> what type of meat, what type of kitchen, what type of chicken in the kitchen. So he was talking not to men. He was talking also to men, obviously. But he was talking to women. <speaking in Hebrew> So as he's talking to women, he's emphasizing this. Because this is one of the great Nekudas, that every person, we live in a world that fluctuates, and a world that changes, and things, we all have different internal toxicity, and different emotions, and different conflicts, and so forth. But Nitzchuni Bonai Nitzchuni, Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Jewish people, you should know that at every moment you can elevate yourself. And I can go into that world of Torah, that world of learning Torah, that world of living Torah, that world of breathing Torah, that world of, of teaching Torah, of sharing Torah, that world in which one can experience complete intimacy, complete oneness with Hashem, not just Hashem as a creator, but Hashem himself. And then when the Jew comes out of that learning and they go back to a world, because we come back to a world we live in a world. We have to transform the world. These animals did come. Some of the animals, these animals existed. Because the Torah is implemented through these animals. But it becomes a different world. It's a world that's illuminated. It's a world that's reflective. It's a world that's infused with the vitality, with the chiyus, with the depth of Torah. That's why in today's, old generations, but in today's generation, you see that people, everyone needs oxygen. <laughs> We need oxygen to live. This physical oxygen. A person can't live without oxygen. Rabbi Kiva said a fish can't live outside of the water. Besides in this case. <laughs> but he said, why can't the fish live without water? Because a fish needs water and Jews need Torah. Every person needs oxygen. Oxygen is emotional oxygen, spiritual oxygen. What's the oxygen of a Jew? The oxygen of a Jew is Yiddishkeit. The oxygen of a Jew is Dveikus and Hashem. The oxygen of a Jew is Torah. And Ibchayim was an embodiment, a living embodiment of a Jew who literally dedicated a whole life to learning and more learning and more learning, and literally, nothing else in the world outside of learning. And it's such it's a, it's a, it's a powerful example for every person, according to their own resources and according to their own opportunities, to be able to learn and understand and appreciate the value of Torah for ourselves, for our spouses, for our children, for our grandchildren, for people we come in contact with. Again, every person according to their sheer, and according to their capabilities, and according to their potentials. But this power, this gift, that gives a person a taste of eternity, is everlasting until that great moment when the world will be filled with Deyes Hashem, and as the Rambam says, the whole world will be one world that reflects Ta'idah, and the Aesachal will be in Yadiah Hashem, the awareness of Hashem. This class is brought to you by the Yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net. Donate.